notice over chapter 23 now, and I'll be using chapter 23 also, and I read here in verse 3, And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart, with all their soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book, and all the people stood to the covenant. They said, we will not only read the word of God, we are going to walk the word of God. We're going to live it. And we need not only to learn it, but we need to live it. Those are the steps that they took here. And I think today we could have revival in many of our churches. I'm convinced of that. But there must be a conviction of sin that only the Word of God can bring. And then when that Word of God brings the conviction, then there must be something done about it. Repentance means to make things right, friends. It means to turn around and go the opposite direction. If you're going wrong, the thing to do is to turn and to go right. I heard of an evangelist that had a meeting in Upper New York State years ago, and he preached for a week, the coldest meeting he'd ever had. Not a movement, not a person made any move toward God. Then one night, the leading deacon in the church came forward and started to repent, shed tears. And you know, that broke the meeting wide open because he was the one standing in the way of revival in that church. And he apologized to somebody. And all that night, it is said, that fellow went to a fence corner and he'd get out on his knees and begin to pray. And the Lord would convict him of something because his life wasn't right. He'd go over and knock on somebody's door. And they'd come to the door and he said, I'm here to make things right. And you know that went on all night. And imagine getting people up 2 and 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. By the morning, there was a revival going on in that town. May I say that's the step. And that's what this man, Josiah, he's king. He has a tremendous influence. And now there's something else that's going to happen. This man is going to put into operation a very bold plan. And Josiah was a very brave man in that day. And I'll have to go over to Second Chronicles to pick up this part of the statement. Chronicles will give us the spiritual side. And let me go over there and pick up in Second Chronicles 34 at verse 33. Will you notice this? And Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertained to the children of Israel and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God. And all his days they departed not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. May I say to you, he put legs to his prayers, and his repentance got in first gear and started moving out. Now, what were the things that he did? Well, here are some of the things that he did. Back in Second Kings 23, verse 4, he put away idolatry. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. In other words, he even took the ashes out of town so they couldn't even look to the ashes. He put away idolatry. And he not only did that, 
he put away immorality. Verse 7, and he broke down the houses of the Sodomites. Now, my friend, I'm going to make a rather bold statement right now. But today, the church is beginning to accept this type of thing today that is unnatural. The thing that God says in Romans, that he gave up a people because of it. And I'm of the opinion that God will give this nation up if we continue on smiling on the unnatural sex orgies that are taking place in our day. This man, Josiah, had the courage to condemn it. And not only to condemn it, to put the Sodomites out of the kingdom. And this sort of thing is wrong, and I don't care if the church condones it, and I don't care whether these little groups meet today and say we ought to accept this sort of thing among consenting adults, and even now among consenting teenagers, it's perfectly all right. Who told you it was all right? Oh, somebody said, well, I think it's all right. Well, my friend, that judgment's no bigger than your little mind, and I don't care whether you got a Ph.D. or not, your little mind and my little mind's not big enough to make judgments like that. God has said that that thing is something that'll bring down his wrath. It has in the past, and I don't think he's changed. We may have, but God hasn't changed. May I say to you, there was a tremendous putting away that which was wrong. And may I say it very point blank, I hear a great deal about loving each other. And I hear a great deal about loving Jesus. My friend, if your life isn't changed, and it doesn't make you clean, and it doesn't make you honest, and it doesn't make you truthful, and it doesn't lift you up, may I say to you, you weren't revived. And I don't know whether you're a child of God or not. You could be a child of God in a pig pen, but you sure look like a pig, my friend. It's not the police that are pigs. A lot of others running around today that are squealing just like pigs. They're living like that today. Oh, somebody says that sounds like a square. Well, I have news for you. I'm a square. <laughs> I don't mind being a square. At least, uh, may I say to you, I know where the corners are. Well, you notice that there's something else that is here. There's something that is positive here. He reinstituted the Passover. And over in the 20. Third chapter here of Second Kings, verse 21, and this is to me quite wonderful. And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover under the Lord your God as it's written in the book of this covenant. They were not keeping it anymore. They had passed it by. And what does that mean? Well, that Passover speaks of Christ. They'd forgotten all about him. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, Paul said. And we're trying to have a religion without Christ today, and the church is trying that. The deity of Christ is ridiculed in seminaries and in pulpits, and the value of his death is rejected and spurned. The efficacy of the blood of Christ is hooted down as something evil today, even by some that are wearing a collar in the back. My friend, the only thing that can save this nation at this time is revival. Now, somebody says, can it come? Yes, I believe that it can come. There is the sound of the going in the tops of the mulberry trees today, that there's an abundance of rain. The flood tide came in the 16th century, 
that was led by the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and Knox. But my friend, in the 14th and 15th centuries were the Reformers before the Reformation. In the 17th century, another great spiritual awakening known as the Puritan movement came. It was dark days. In the 18th century, another time of darkness and deism, another great spiritual awakening led by Wesley and Whitfield. In the 19th century, a mighty turning to God in Oxford and the missionary movements. And toward the end of the century, the great revivals that were led by Finney and Moody. In the 20th century, there's been no great world-sweeping and earth-shaking revival. Been a few local revivals, the Welsh and the Irish revival, led by Dr. William Nicholson. But they've just only been local. The 20th century is fast drawing to an end. The harvest is past. The summer's ended. We're not saved. How long, O Lord, holy and true, how long? Watchman, what of the night? Look around you today. We had a depression. We didn't turn to God. We were plunged in World War II and saw the spilling of American blood that has never been equal before in our sense. That didn't teach us a thing. There was no revival. And now we haven't had peace since then. And they think that if they get out and protest something today with long hair, it's going to solve something. We do not need long hair. We need some real long, deep conviction on the inside today. My friend, we need to recognize even our coldness and indifference. Many of us today, by the way, when was the last time you repented of your coldness and indifference to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you told him today that you love him? <laughs> He's your Savior, my friend. And I'm convinced even in this dark hour, as it's happened in the past, this revival of Josiah encourages me. It was the darkest hour in the life of this nation. And somebody, a friend of mine, called my attention to this. He's been following along with us in our study. And he said, have you ever noticed when the people were right spiritually with God, the children of Israel, there's always mention of the fact that they had gold and silver in abundance and the fruits of the land were multiplied. Well, that's quite interesting. Maybe the reason that this country doesn't seem to be able to pull out of a financial problem, and we seem to get more and more enmeshed in it, is we're not using the right financial means to right things. Maybe that our problem, after all, is spiritual. Now we come to a heartbreak in the story of Josiah. Great revival, and it was at the end of this kingdom. They'll be in captivity We'll see that today. And God moved in a mighty way, just one great wave here at the end, to reveal the fact that he can send revival in the most difficult and dark days. But what ended the revival? Well, this is what ended the revival. Verse 28, Now the rest of the acts of Josiah, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Well, what about him? Well, let's listen. Verse 29. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up against the king of Assyria, 
to the river Euphrates. Now, my thought would be, Josiah, you keep your nose out of that fight. That's not your fight. You don't enter into it. But he entered into it. And King Josiah went against him, and he slew him at Megiddo when he had seen him. Now, you see, he should have stayed home. One time, you remember, David should not have stayed home. He should have gone to the battle, and he got in trouble. Now, Josiah should stay home. This is not his fight. And he goes out, and what happens? He's slain at Megiddo. By the way, that is where, not the battle, but the war of Armageddon will be fought in the last days. That is, that's where it's consummated, apparently, in that great valley of Esdrael in there at the hill of Megiddo. Now, this man Josiah, great man of God, but he did something rather foolish. He should not have gone out and entered a war. Say, that might be a message for another nation I know about. I'm afraid that we have meddled throughout the world today. May I say that we need to recognize that the only message that America has for the world today is not democracy. But it is the Word of God. And my friend, we were blessed when we were sending out the Word of God. When we're sending out the propaganda that we send out, we're an immoral nation. God's not in it at all. And we're not being blessed today. And as a result, why, this is a great lesson, I think, for us. Josiah should stay at home. This wasn't his fight. Verse 30, and his servants carried him in a chariot dead from Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem, buried in his own sepulcher. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him, made him king in his father's stead. Well, you'd think now this boy that's coming to the throne, he'll follow in his father's footsteps, but he did not. He's an evil king, by the way. And he really is a bad one. fact of the matter is, he didn't get the throne warm sitting on it. He didn't last but three months. Verse 31, Jehoahaz was twenty and three years old when he began to reign. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And we find again the mother of these kings is mentioned. And then we find that he didn't last very long. Pharaoh didn't like the way he was reigning, and he removed him from the throne and took him down into the land of Egypt, and he died down there. And we read in verse 34, And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the room of Josiah's father, and turned his name to Jehoiakim, and took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. Now, he put the brother of this man on the throne, Jehoiakim, and he reigned eleven years, but he's an evil king. Verse 37, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Now, you see, we go from bad to worse. Jehoahaz was bad. Jehoiakim is even worse. Now there's a great power rising in the east on the Euphrates River, and that is Babylon. And Babylon is displacing Assyria. In fact, Babylon overcame Assyria. 
And Babylon will overcome Egypt, by the way, and become the first great world power. We get that in the book of Daniel later on. And it's right at this point that we actually ought to turn and read Jeremiah, because Jeremiah was the great prophet during this era. And he was the one that was calling this nation back to God and warning them that if they didn't turn to God, that they would be taken captive and be sent to Babylon. And this just seemed unbelievable because at this time, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was not quite this formidable. And they couldn't believe it. And the false prophets were telling the nation that God just couldn't get along without them, that the temple of God was there, the city of God was there, the nation of God was there. Well, God had to have them. He just couldn't get along without them. They found out he could get along without them. Actually didn't need that temple to tell the truth. And it is going to be destroyed. Now, in verse 1, chapter 24, In his days Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant. Three years, then he turned and rebelled against him. You see, Jehoiakim had been put on the throne by the Pharaoh in Egypt. And now Nebuchadnezzar comes up at this particular time. And he didn't like Nebuchadnezzar, apparently, so he rebelled against him. And what happened? Verse 2, And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees, bands of the Syrians, bands of the Moabites, bands of the children of Ammon. You see, this man, Nebuchadnezzar, is now uniting his kingdom and bringing all these peoples together. And he's sending this great army now against Jerusalem. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did. I told you that Manasseh was the rascal. And if the glory didn't depart during his reign, nothing that would happen afterward cause it to depart. And because these people did not depart from the sins of Manasseh, they're going now into captivity. And also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. They say that God will pardon all sin. Yes, if you'll come to him. But there are certain sins that are not pardonable, and I want you to listen very carefully. Christ died for all of them. But they're not pardonable because men don't come to Christ. My friend, that's the only place in the world that you'll ever have your sins forgiven, is to come to the one who died for you, paid the penalty for your sins. Who else can forgive you your sins? He alone is the way and the truth and the life. Now we are told the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? It gets a little complicated here now. Notice what happened. So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his stead. The king of Egypt came not again any more out of his land. Why? Well, for the king of Babylon had taken from the river of Egypt under the river Euphrates all that pertained to the king of Egypt. Now, this is interesting to note. This is the exact land that God had vouchsafed to Abraham and those that came after him. Well, why don't they have it? The king of Babylon has it now. Well, they've sinned against God. And they've turned away from God. And that is the condition which they're going to occupy the land. 
Now, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign. He reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. And notice this, same old story. It gets a little monotonous. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem. The city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants, his princes, his officers. And the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. Now the king... And all the nobility are carried away in the first deputation that go into captivity. This took place about 605 B.C. Now he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king's house. He cut in pieces the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. He carried away all Jerusalem, all the princes, all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen, smiths, none remained save the poorest sort of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon and the king's mother and the king's wives and his officers and the mighty of the land. Those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, it's a sad, sordid, sorry story, you see. Now we find the king of Babylon made Mataniah his father's brother king in his stead, changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the last king. He's the uncle of Jehoiachin. Zedekiah was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamutal, you see, going way back to this woman that we had that was the mother of Jehoahaz. That would make him, you see, the uncle of Jehoiachin that's being carried away in captivity. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. He didn't improve. You'd think that the captivity would sober him. It did not at all. You see, trouble will do one of two things for an individual. Either soften you or harden you. Either draw you to God or draw you away from God. You can never be the same after trouble or suffering. Now will you notice, verse 20, For through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah, until he had cast them out from his presence, that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now again, false prophet said, Look, God's on our side, but God's not on your side. And that is something that a great many people today need to be very careful about. I have had people say, well, I know this is God's will. He's revealed it to me, and they do whatever they had in mind to do. And God wasn't in it, and they failed in that. I know missionaries that went to the field, then came back. I had to say, as one young man said to me, I made a mistake in going out. But I said, you told me that you were in God's will. You were sure. Well, he said, I thought so. You better not think so. You better be sure when you begin to talk about God's on your side. Remember the false prophet said that God's on our side, but God wasn't on his side. God said, I'll fight against you. I'll send you into captivity. I want to make sure, not that God's on my side. I want to make sure that I'm on God's side, friend. This idea of talking about my will is God's will and not always true. 
Somebody said to me, you ought to have more faith. God's going to heal you completely. I don't have that kind of faith. Sorry, I don't have it. I don't know what God's will is. But I want you to know this. I'm in his hands. (laughs) And whatever his will is, I'll have to accept it. I'll bow to it. But we need to be very careful about this. The false prophets giving them false propaganda. Now, notice what happens. This man comes up again. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar came three times against Jerusalem. The first time, you see, he didn't destroy the city. He just put Zedekiah in his king. But Zedekiah now rebelled. So it came to pass, this is chapter 25, now verse 1, came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his host, against Jerusalem, pitched against it. They built forts against it round about. The city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And then we're told, on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. And the city was broken up. All the men of war fled by night, by the way of the gate between two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldees were against the city round about, and the king went the way toward the plain. The army of the Chaldees pursued after the king, overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army were scattered from him. So they took the king, brought him up to the king of Babylon, to Riblah, and they gave judgment upon him. Now notice this. This was something that Jeremiah had predicted. And he was considered a traitor because he told the people the truth. Verse 7, And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with feathers of brass, and carried him to Babylon. This man deceived a false prophet. And would not listen to God's prophet. Now he's carried away into captivity, blinded. Now, what did Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, because this city had rebelled, verse 9, he burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem and every great man's house burnt he with fire. Now, this city was burnt and leveled so that when Nehemiah came later on, after the 70 years' captivity, and looked upon that waste. It almost seemed hopeless and helpless, and he rallied the people. And the thing he had to overcome more than anything else was discouragement. These people were discouraged. What had happened? Well, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar had now broken into the city. The false prophets were false prophets. They'd said, God won't let this city be destroyed. And there are people today that are giving out in this country a false message, friends. They're saying that we're part of the ten lost tribes. They're saying God's on our side. He won't let us down. Why, my friend, God doesn't have to have us. Where did that notion come from? Well, it came from this period. And God sent them into captivity. Sad day for them. And it ought to be a lesson for us in this day. Now let me begin reading at verse 10. And all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. Now the rest of the people that were left in the city and the fugitives that fell away to the king of Babylon with the remnant of the multitude did Nebuzar Adan, the captain of the guard, carry away. But the captain of the guard left of the poor of the land to be vine dressers and husbandmen. And the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord and the bases 
the brazen sea that was in the house of the Lord, did the Chaldees break in pieces, carried the brass of them to Babylon, and the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the spoons. In other words, he cleaned house. He just absolutely cleaned out the temple before it was destroyed with fire. And all of that was taken away into Babylon and all of these vessels. Now, we'll have an occasion we get to the book of Daniel to find those vessels were stored away and then were brought out when Belshazzar had that great banquet in his day. And there's a great deal of detail here about all that he took, and I'm not going to read all of that, but it reveals that he plundered the city of Jerusalem, burned it, and leveled it with the ground, and it was a great rubble that was there. You see, that city has been destroyed about 27 times. And each time, it's been rebuilt on the rubble, one right upon another. And the hill that Jerusalem is built on today is largely the rubble of past cities that is built up there. You hear people say today, especially all these tour agents, they amuse me. They say, come and go to Israel and walk today where Jesus walked. Well, my friend, you won't be walking where Jesus walked in Jerusalem. If you go to several spots there, and I'll not take time to go into detail, but if you go to them and look, you have to look all the way down, sometimes 20 feet, sometimes 25, sometimes 45 feet down to see the city that Jesus lived in and walked in. That is something that's quite interesting. Now, we are told here that he took all the people into captivity, and then, verse 24, he made Gedaliah governor of the land. And Gedaliah swore to them and to their men, and said unto them, Fear not to be the servants of the Chaldees. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon. It shall be well with you. They had only listened to Jeremiah. They wouldn't be in that sad condition. Now we are told it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael the son of the seed royal, he came, and ten men with him, and he smote Gedaliah, that he died, and the Jews and the Chaldees that were with him at Mizpah, and all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the armies, arose and came to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldees. A great company of them fled into Egypt and became colonists down there. And by the way, Jeremiah went with that group. He didn't go willingly. They took him. So it came to pass, verse 27, in the seventh and thirtieth year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the twelfth month on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, that Evel, Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, did lift up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, out of prison. He spoke kindly to him, set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon, changed his prison garments, and he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. But you see, he is a subject king in a foreign court. All right, we finish Second Kings. We will go next time to the Epistle to the Romans. I hope to meet you in the Epistle to the Romans.